I'm not going to lie, my voice is, uh, is going to be pushing it today, and I was doing all I could to not sing, uh, but I could not not sing right there. That is the cry of my heart, have mercy on me, how desperately I know that I need that, and I could not not sing that. So, I don't know, you guys may get a few minutes shorter of a sermon because of it, I don't know, we'll see. Uh, we'll try my best to keep it to the point this morning, maybe even a bit shorter, but we are finishing the book of Exodus today, which we began the, the first Sunday of the year, maybe, the, maybe not the first Sunday of the year, but back in January we began uh, looking at this great book, and we have been uh, really going through this the whole year, took a few months off in the summer uh, while I was on sabbatical and the elders taught, and uh, we've, we've done well over 30 sermons in this great book, but now we have reached uh, the end, and we will take our final look at this wonderful book. I hope it has blessed you. I hope it has challenged you as much as it has me. I have had uh, tremendous joy being able to preach this and to, to look at this. And But how, how do you finish out a great book like this? How do you put kind of a bow on a, a book like this that, that is considered by many to be the heart of the Pentateuch? That a book like Genesis that is so foundational is really just the prologue to this book. The numbers in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, as, we, uh, as, as that continues on, are really just a reflection back on what is established in this book. How do you, how do you really finish off something like that? What I want to do this morning is let the book of Exodus show us how to close it out and then go back and remember a few things that we've covered over the course of the past year. So if you've not been with us over the course of the last year, you'll get a glimpse at some of the things that we've looked at. We won't be able to go in depth in, in a lot of these things, but hopefully you'll be able to, to see enough, glean enough to see what God has done in this book and maybe even spur you on to go back and, and listen to some messages. Or even if you have been here for the last year, maybe it will, will jog your, your, your memory and, and want you to go back to a text just to meditate on and to consider I hope that will happen this morning. Exodus chapter 40 is where we're going to be at the final verses of the book of Exodus. We're going to start in verse 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Remember last week we looked at obedience and how they built all the things around for the tabernacle. They, they were sewing the priestly garments. They were sewing the curtains and the veil. They were building the, the, the tables. They were doing all the things to build the tabernacle. Finally, we get to verse 33 and Moses finishes the work. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So this book ends on this beautiful picture a picture of God, of Yahweh and His glory abiding in the tabernacle with His people in the middle of the camp. In light of all that we've seen, there could be no more appropriate way for us to kind of sum up this book and consider the wonderful things that we've seen in this book. The glory of God amongst the people of God on their way to the land that was promised by God. 
That is a beautiful picture for us. I titled this series when we began Exodus, No Other Gods. And I did that because we see that, that theme carried out in so many different ways in this book, over and over and over in this book. No other gods. And what I want to do this morning is I want to go back to the beginning and I want to see how this theme shows itself to be true and how it leads us to this final picture of the glory of God. And so the first thing that I want us to see this morning when we talk about no other gods is that no other God makes promises and keeps them. No other God makes promises and keeps them. So compare how this ends at, in chapter 40 to how it began all the way back in Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, if you want to turn back there to the very beginning of the book. We'll just read the first few verses of this, and I want you to compare what we see at the end of Exodus to what we see at the beginning. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. That's how this book began. It began with a picture of God's people, forgotten for all intents and purposes. If you were here whenever we began this, you remember we spent a lot of time going back to Genesis and taking a look at, at what was there. And the reality is that the beginning of the book of Exodus could not, could not look more different than the end. At this point, what we see in Exodus chapter 1 is that Israel has a handful of promises from a God they hadn't heard from in centuries. They were oppressed. They were enslaved. They were treated terribly. And as best they could tell, they were completely forgotten. They had nothing. They were adopting the religions of the, the people of Egypt around them, of their slave masters. They had nothing. They knew of the story of, of, their, of their forefathers, of, of what Joseph had done. It was a dark picture for them in the very beginning of this. But what we see by the end of chapter 2 in Exodus is that that wasn't the full picture. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, we read this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What we said from the very beginning of this book and what I could have said virtually every sermon throughout this book is that God is a God that makes promises and God is a God who keeps them. 
He initiates the call to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. He makes the promise to Abraham in spite of Abraham's doubt. He keeps the promise to make him a great nation. And then when this nation is oppressed, in spite of all, all evidence to the contrary, God remembers his people. And the book of Exodus is the story of how God keeps his promises to his people. I could have said it every single week as we went through this book. This morning, just days before Thanksgiving, I can think of nothing greater to celebrate than this, that God keeps his promise. That God makes the promise, that God comes to us to give the promise, and then God keeps the promise. God remembers his people and keeps his promises. Psalm 105, if you want to turn there, I'm going to read a big chunk from Psalm 105 this morning that I think does a good job of summing up the point that I'm trying to make here. And anytime I can let scripture make the point, instead of me trying to say it right, I will do that. So Psalm 105, we'll start in verse 7, and then we'll skip down to verse 23. So Psalm 105, verse 7. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever. The word He commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that He made with Abraham, His sworn promise to Isaac. And then skip down to verse 23. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made His people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate His people to deal, cra deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness, and he made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and their fig trees. He shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land. And he ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. And then he brought Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them <clears throat> had fallen upon it. Verse 39, he spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and the water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. The psalmist celebrates the fact that God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises to Israel because he knows that means that his. <clears throat> sorry, let me say that again. We can celebrate the fact the same way the psalmist does. The psalmist celebrates the fact that God keeps his promise to Israel, and we can celebrate in the same way because we can look and see what God did with Israel, and we can know that he does the same for us. He keeps his promises. He does all these things that the psalmist lists. Yes, he, he, he called Moses out, and Moses was the spokesperson, but he's the one who does this. He's the one that establishes the covenant, and he's the one that sets the terms for the plagues, that delivers the people of Israel. It's God who does all of this. And there is no other God that does this. 
only our God. The second thing that I want you to see this morning is that no other God can rival the power and the authority of Yahweh. No other God can rival the power and authority of Yahweh. As you read through the, the, this psalm, you're reminded of all the, the plagues and how, how God systematically tears down this complex system of gods that Egypt had created. If you were here for that, we saw how each of those plagues goes back to a different God that the, that the Egyptians had. We, it, we, we saw how each of those plagues weren't just some random thing that God wanted to do to punish, but it was something where God was asserting His power, His authority over the gods that Egypt worshipped. At the top of that list was none other than Pharaoh himself, who considered himself to be not only a god, but the supreme god of the people of Egypt. And the showdown between Moses and Pharaoh was intense. It's made for a movie. It's made for TV. Maybe that's why it plays out so well in so many different movies, because it is high drama and high stakes. Pharaoh won't back down. And Moses is confident in what God is going to do. And in that exchange, there is a central verse that kind of defines not just the exchange between Moses and Pharaoh, but really defines the entire book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, a verse we went back to a lot. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? That is the crux of the book. Everything leads up to that question and everything flows out of that question. It is the question that Pharaoh and all of Egypt will resoundingly have answered for them over the next few chapters. It is the question that lies at the heart of Scripture itself. It is the question before each of us here this morning. It's the question before you tomorrow morning, and the morning after that, and the morning after that. And if God gives you 20 years when you wake up that morning, the question that will be before you is, who is this God that I should obey Him? It is the question for us every single day of our lives. And it is the single most important thing about us, how we answer that question. It will drive everything we do. It will shape what we say. It will determine how we act. Not just how we mentally see this and how we can mentally define who God is, but what our hearts truly believe Him to be. If you see God as a grandpa, you will take advantage of His kindness. If you see God as a cosmic police officer, you will run and you will hide from him. If you see him as a killjoy who's just out to take the things that you, you enjoy so much, then you will not trust him. If you see him as a butler, you will use him for your own ends. But if you see him as a promise-keeping, fully sovereign, idol-destroying, joy-giving God, then you will be able to trust Him. You will run to Him. You will fear Him. You will worship Him. And you will seek Him. So who is the Lord that we should obey Him? One thing the showdown between Moses and Pharaoh makes clear is that God is nothing like any of those weak gods that Pharaoh had. Nothing like the weak God that Pharaoh pretended to be. 
In fact, he is like no other God. The third thing for us to remember this morning as we look back over this is no other God can show you the path to joy and freedom. No other God can show you the path to joy and freedom. After the showdown between Pharaoh and Moses, Pharaoh finally relents. We see Passover that that takes place. The the people of Israel leave. They cross the Red Sea. They escape. The, The armies of Pharaoh are drowned in the Red Sea, and they show up at Mount Sinai where they set up camp. And there they receive the law. They're given the Ten Commandments, which if you don't know a lot about the Ten Commandments or you just know them by reputation, They are known for being restrictive, joy-robbing tasks that are burdened upon us so that we can kind of get to God, or at least so that we can get God to like us. And ultimately, if we can get God to like us, then we can get God to do what we want Him to do. That's what the Ten Commandments are for, for so many people. They are things to do so that God will like us and so that we can ultimately put God in our debt and say, you owe this to me now because look at how I've kept this law. But you see, that's how other gods work. But there are no other gods like our God. The other gods command you to act. They command you to do They take joy away in order to exact some penance on you. This is every single religion in the world. You perform, that God will, in theory, then respond. That's how those religions work. You do enough, that God might, might, might reward you. You have no way of knowing if that's the truth. You have no way of knowing if you've been good enough. It will always demand more. Because there are no gods at all. That's every religion in the world. You perform, God responds. But our God, Israel's God, turns that around completely. Instead, he initiates, he pursues, he frees, he rescues. And only then does he say, now walk in this way. You see, he set the people of Israel free. He brought them out of slavery. Then they camped at Sinai. Then he gave the law. He gave them freedom first. And then he said, now this is the way you should walk. This is how it works for God's people. He tells us that we are his. But if we want to experience the fullness of joy, the fullness of freedom, if we want to truly know the full blessing of being his, then we adhere to that law. We don't adhere in order to receive the blessing. We receive the blessing as we adhere. This is how it works for God's people. But for those that are far from God, For those that don't know God, it doesn't work the same way. You see, God calls and initiates, and then he says, this is the way you should go. But for those that that are far from God, for those that are not part of God's people, then the law works to show how broken, how self-absorbed, how sinful we are. This is what we talked about with the Ten Commandments. They are our spiritual MRI. The, The law of God reveals to us where we are broken, where we fall short, 
where we are sick and where we are needy. It exposes our weakest and our darkest places. Shows how we exalt ourselves into the place of God. And then the guilt and the pain and the feeling of desperation that comes in that moment whenever we see just how far we fall short. That too is the grace of God. Without that, we would not know the need for God's forgiveness. We would not know what he required. Which prompts the next question. How do we know that we are God's people? And this is the fourth thing that I want us to see this morning. No other God dwells with his people. No other God dwells with his people. We can know we are God's people when God dwells inside of us. Now, if you're not, if you're not a Christian or you've not been in church, that language may sound a little bit crazy. It might, might sound a little bit, little bit weird. What, I'm, I'm not saying that God comes and makes us a God and that we become a God because he's inside of us. What I'm saying is that he comes in us. He is the, the one that dwells in us. And that what that MRI had revealed, he comes to fix. This is the picture that is given to us in the second half of the book of Exodus after the law. A God that goes with his people, and as we saw just a few minutes ago at the end of this book, ultimately dwells with his people. There's much we could say here about the details of the tabernacle, the purpose of the tabernacle, and how it all gives us a, a picture of what is required by God to dwell with his people. But what I want to remind you is that so much of the book of Exodus is simply a partial unveiling of what will be fully revealed when Jesus comes, and even further revealed when he returns for a second time. This book is consistently pointing us to the greater truths that will be fulfilled by Jesus. Remember, this is what we talked about, the type, anti-type, over and over and over again in this book. The theologian Augustine said, what is concealed in the old is revealed in the new. That's a good way to summarize much of Exodus. As we talk about the tabernacle and we talk about all the detail and everything that is required just so that God could come and be in the midst of his people, we realize that sin is a serious thing. Because then we start talking about atonement and we talk about the, the, the laws that come with the sacrifice and all that, that happens with that. Over and over and over again, we're given this picture of what is required for God to dwell among his people. The book of Exodus gives us this picture. And as we begin our season of Advent next week and we look towards Christmas, we see just one way in which this is carried out, how what is, what is concealed in the old is revealed in the new. At Christmas, God comes to dwell with his people, just as he dwelled with his people in the tabernacle. God dwells with his people in the tabernacle, and then he tells us that Jesus comes, the scripture tells us that Jesus comes to dwell with us at his birth, literally to tabernacle with us, and that the culmination of this is that we have a God through his spirit who will dwell within us. And this is the progression that has begun in the book of Exodus. Our God is not in some tomb to go and worship for us to make a pilgrimage to. 
He is with us. And he is in each of us that have come to him, that have repented of our sins, that have acknowledged him as Savior, as Lord, and have submitted to him as King. This is the picture that we're given in the book of Exodus. And no other God can make that claim. No other God would dare make that claim, yet Yahweh does. That he has come to dwell with us and he has come to dwell in us. Over and over and over again, we are given pictures like this in the book of Exodus. And then the final thing that I want us to see this morning is that no other God is worthy of worship. No other God is worthy of worship. So we come to the way this book ends. The glory of God with the people of God as they pursue the promises of God. The stark comparison to the beginning where God was nowhere to be found. His promises were in doubt. And now we come here and God is with his people. His promises are sure and his people are marching to claim those promises while the glory of God fills the tabernacle in their midst. In Psalm 115, the psalmist asked the question, who is like our God? The overwhelming answer that is driven home in every single chapter of this book is no one. There is no one like our God. There is none like him. A God that keeps his promises. A God that is sovereign over all. Any God that would rise to challenge him cannot even come close. He has no rivals, as we sing here a lot. He has no rivals. A God that teaches that we may know joy, life, and fullness. A God that will come and dwell among his people so that his people may know him. So that those who are far, far off may know him. Who is like our God? There is no one like our God. And then what this book ultimately points us to is not just a God that dwells with us, but a God that suffers with us. When we see those laws laid out and what is prescribed for the, 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 the giving of the sacrifice for atonement, we're meant to look forward to see a greater sacrifice, as the book of Hebrews tells us over and over. He doesn't just dwell with us. He suffers with us. He identifies with his people in their suffering. He knows our suffering. Not only does he know it, he comes to identify and to be and to take part in it. He does not watch from afar, but he endures betrayal, physical suffering and beatings, even death, even death on a cross. This is why he comes to dwell with us. That we may, as we're going to see over the next few weeks, behold his glory among us. And that we may be saved by his suffering. Who is like our God? There is none like our God. There are no other gods that pursue us in spite of our sin. 
There are no other gods that are as powerful as he is. There are no other gods that give us a path to joy and freedom. And there are certainly no other gods who would suffer on behalf of his people. But to answer Pharaoh's question, to answer the question at the heart of this book, who is God that I should obey him? The resounding answer is that he is the sovereign God of the universe that demands our lives, that demands our unquestioned surrender. And he does so not because he is arrogant or needy, but because he is worthy. He is the only one worthy. Because there are no other gods before him, above him, or equal to him. My prayer in this series, my prayer every time I stand up here to speak, is that I am able to communicate that to you on some level. That you would know God more, and as you know him more, you would see how worthy he is. And I pray that you have seen that week after week. And in seeing this truth, you will be marked by it. That when you wake up on Monday morning, whenever you sit down to eat dinner at, at, at a table for Thanksgiving, whenever you walk through the busyness of the, Christ, of the Christmas season, whenever you are in the, 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 the middle of June next summer and you're just trying to make it through whatever's going on in the summer, that when you wake up, what you're thinking about is the glory of God and what he has done for you on your behalf. That whenever you are in a hospital room or whenever you are, you are celebrating with, with Chris and Kristen over a new baby, you are thinking about the glory of God and how he is with his people at all times. And that when you feel, especially when you feel in those moments that you don't measure up, that your sin has marred you, that you are marked by your sin and you are marked by your weakness, when you feel the lowest and the weakest and full of the most shame, He is still here with us. And you can come to Him and you can confess all of that to Him. And there is no other God that you can do that with. If you've never done that, I pray that this morning you would do that. If you have done that this morning, I pray that you will see God, that you will know God, and that your life will be driven by the glory of God. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this amazing book. A book that recounts your faithfulness to your promises. A book that, though it was written so long ago, can challenge, can change our hearts today. That through the work of your Spirit, you can teach us about these ancient people and how you saved them. And how in doing so, you give us a picture of how you save us. This morning, Father, I pray that you would give us a picture of who you are. 
that we may in some measure see your glory and be forever marked by that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.